sermon will really help you. And so this is the, this is the key to revival. But so, Father, we come in Jesus' name through his blood tonight. We thank you for an open heaven. We thank you for your presence here. We thank you, Holy Spirit, for moving among us. And, Lord, we just love your word so much. Thank you for your word. And, Lord, I thank you for coming upon me and speaking through me the word of the Lord, everything that needs to be said under a mighty anointing that even now your Holy Spirit is moving upon every one of us that are going to be listening and watching this. So we thank you for that right now, people, to sense your nearness, sense your presence and power. And I thank you, Lord, for this word going out as living seeds that are sown in good soil, watered by the Holy Spirit. And the seeds of truth will be taken root and begin to grow and produce a hundredfold harvest of eternal fruit that remains in all that are going to hear this. And I thank you for the winds of your spirit carrying this out among the nations. It'll get where it's supposed to accomplish what it's supposed to. We thank you for it now. And any birds of the air that try to steal the seed, we bind you in the name of Jesus. We break your power. You will back off right now. You have no authority. And Lord, I thank you for your angels just clearing that away right now. There's not going to be any hindrance. And Lord, your word will not return void, but will accomplish what you sent it for to do. So we thank you for hearing and answering the prayers over the word of the Lord being preached tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so as we get into this tonight, I'm dealing with part 13 in a series, and as far as I'm concerned, this series could go the rest of the year, but we're going to be looking at a lot of different revivals. After this, uh, we're, we'll start looking at the revival that broke out in the 40s and 50s, and then from there on, you know, there's several other moves of God, and, and then we'll talk about the last great revival that is yet to come. So tonight is, is I want to kind of detour just a little, but it's not, I wouldn't say it is too much of a detour. We're going to look primarily at prayer, but this is connected to the revival of the 40s and 50s, which is what I want to get to. I believe this would be a blessing to you. Uh, many of you have read the book by Franklin Hall, Atomic Power Prayer and Fasting, but he's also written some other books that are really powerful. And there's some tremendous testimonies in these books that, I mean, will blow your mind. I'll share a couple of them tonight. But in this, I want to look at this tonight in part 13, that it's only by fervent prayer and fasting. Everybody say prayer and fasting. That's the key. And so that fervent prayer. Now, think about the book of James where it says the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man and and in other translations, the Amplified Classic, it talks about the consistent, heartfelt prayers of the righteous. That's the fervent. It's heartfelt, and it's consistent, and it's persistent until the end. There's this fervent prayer, the type of prayer that brings breakthrough, okay? So as we've looked at these revivals, something up to this point that all of you will have seen, and I'm sure that you'll bear witness to this, history shows us that every time that revivalists come, society has moved into a dark place. It seems like the church is backslidden, and then there's a remnant of God's people, usually small in number, that begin to really have a burden to pray, and they begin to really cry out to God and then God pours out his spirit and turns the tide. That is the consistent witness of history that we see over and over again 
but it is God's remnant. And we're living in this time, and I know that you know this, but our society has gotten more dark than it's probably ever been in the history of the United States right now. And the church is in a backslidden condition by and large, worldliness. And so we need another major revival, not just in America. We need a major revival around the world that's going to yield the harvest and help us get ready to meet the Lord in the air. And so that's where we're at. And I believe great, the greatest revival in history is about to happen. And it's going to take place because uh, of the lateness of the hour. And that's what Brother Holt told me. For This is for me and for River of Life. He said that he saw for us, this is his exact words, a very intense move of the Spirit. He said there would be such a thick glory, and it would be so intense. And he said the reason for the intensity is the lateness of the hour. And we're at that. And how many are sensing just over the last year, you, you have felt it just like I have. God has been increasing his glory. There's been an increase of the anointing as well. There's been an increase of like a fire. And God's been deepening things here. And I sense it even now. I've sensed that God's been deepening things over the last month or so. He's getting us ready. So I want to share a couple things. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but this is something that God has shown me personally that really helped me. In Genesis, let me show you the importance of fasting, a fasting lifestyle. Now, when I talk about fasting, a lot of people that may be not familiar with this subject may think that I'm just talking about like you don't eat for a long time or something, you're starving yourself. I'm not really talking about that because there's partial fast. There's fast from morning to evening. There's, there's fast where you skip a meal a day for so many days or you, like Daniel, you skip certain things for maybe 21 days, things like that. But there, there's different types of fasting, but a lifestyle of fasting. I know in River of Life, by and large, all of us at least um, are giving up food once a week for, from morning to evening. And we all do this collectively as a church so that every day of the week is covered. But it's important because there's promises connected to fasting there are benefits of fasting that you're not going to get those benefits and you're not going to get those promises any other way other than fasting. And so it is a very important thing. And when Jesus talked about fasting, he didn't say if, he said when you fast, here's how you do it. So let me show you something. In Genesis chapter 27, verse 4, many of you remember the story of Jacob and Esau and how Jacob basically kind of stole Esau's blessing. But in actual fact, it was always God's will that Jacob get that blessing. You remember even Rebekah knew that. He said the Lord showed her that there were two nations in there and they were warring and that the younger would be uh, superior to the older. And so she knew that from the beginning, she knew Jacob was the one. But see, in that culture, the oldest got the blessing. Now, here's what I, where I'm going with this. Isaac should have known that. Isaac was, was Abraham's son. He should have had some discernment about him. But here's the thing. When Isaac was supposed to be making probably the most important decision of his life, who was going to receive the blessing from him that what transferred to him from Abraham to Isaac, now going to the next generation to carry on that legacy to become the great nation 
This was the most important decision of Isaac's life. He should have been fasting and asking God what to do. Instead, here's what he's doing. He asks Esau, go out and hunt and bring me in some food. And here he is feasting instead of fasting. And, and he would have made the wrong decision. Did anybody ever think of that? We could be dealing with Abraham, Isaac, and Esau, and Esau would have led them down the wrong path. Isaac missed God big time. Now, if you take that and compare that to Jesus, look at Jesus in Luke chapter 6. Jesus is about to make one of the most important decisions of his life. Who is going to be his disciples and who's going to be his successors when he departs? He's going to entrust them with the ministry and with the church that he purchased with his blood. Who was going to be his leadership? This was one of the most important decisions Jesus Christ was going to make on the earth. And you know what he did when it was time to make the decision? The Bible says he went off by himself and sought the Lord all night. He prayed, and there was nobody there to cook food. So we know that he was also fasting. So Jesus spent the night in prayer and fasting. The next morning, he calls those specific 12 unto him that they might be with him. And every single one of them was the perfect will of God to succeed him. Even Judas, that was God's will because he had a purpose to fulfill. Where Isaac was feasting and would have missed God, Jesus was in prayer and fasting and hit the nail on the head. Is everybody seeing this? In 1 Samuel 14, let me give you another example. Eli, I'm not as hard on Eli as some people. I think that he loved God, and I think that he was a man of God. But he had two wicked sons that he would not deal with. And because he would not remove them from the priesthood, y'all please hear me tonight, because he would not remove them from the priesthood, this was his responsibility that he saw wickedness in them, they were going to be his successor. So instead of removing them so that there could be a righteous successor, he let them carry on the priestly duties even though they were living in sin. And they also spurned the offerings. They, they didn't honor God's offerings as holy. They were using it as an opportunity to get the best meat to eat. That's all that they cared about. And it really angered the Lord so much that God had determined, I am going to kill these two. They will not continue on in my priesthood. But Eli should have dealt with them. And while Eli, let me read this, and this is telling. It's 1 Samuel 4, 18, records that Eli heard that the ark was stolen by the Philistines. And when Eli heard this, he fell off his chair and broke his neck and died because he was a very heavy man. So I don't think that Eli, I think it's, it's telling here, I don't think that he was a man given to prayer and fasting. I think he was somebody probably somewhat gluttonous. And in Exodus 32, now where Eli should have been dealing with things, let me show you how Moses dealt with it. You ready? Moses was on Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 32, Moses was on Mount Sinai in prayer and fasting, and God spoke to him that the children of Israel had begun to worship the golden calf. Moses came down, threw the tablets down. He went in there, and he dealt with it. Did y'all hear what I said? 
so that the sin could be dealt with, so the children of Israel can put it out of their midst and could move on into their destiny. So whenever it came time to deal with things that needed to be dealt with, Eli was not a man of prayer and fasting and wasn't dealing with it, but Moses was a man of prayer and fasting and dealt with it. Did y'all see this? And let me show you something else now about personal destiny. In Judges chapter 16, verses 15 through 17, Samson had a high calling on his life, probably one of the highest callings of anybody in the Bible. He was one of only three that God had separated as a Nazarite from birth, meaning that a Nazarite vow, the hair grew out. He lived a life of partial fasting because he couldn't eat or drink anything associated with the grape. So his whole life was a life of fasting. And he had to stay away from dead bodies because they, under the law of Moses, they defiled you. And so he was set apart unto God with a very high calling. The only other two that we read about, the total of three, was him and then Samuel and then John the Baptist. All of them had very high callings. But Samson did not honor God to keep himself pure. He was a man that had an issue with the lust of the flesh. And because of that, we know from the scriptures that he touched dead bodies and he defiled himself. Also, he partied with the Philistines. Why in the world would he be partying with the enemy in the first place? But that would have included that he was drinking from the fruit of the vine. He was breaking his vow, breaking his fast. And finally, in the end, he let Delilah cut off his hair, and that was the last uh, part of the vow to break. And then that's when God departed from him. But Samson, even though he had a high calling... Because of the lust of the flesh, he ended up losing out with God and literally ruining the rest of his life. He totally, completely lost his destiny in God. But let's compare him to somebody else that had a very high calling. That was a Nazarite from birth, and that's John the Baptist. John the Baptist, on the other hand, he was faithful. He was not a man of, the, of like the lust of the flesh. He was faithful to his vow. He was faithful to fast, live a fasted lifestyle. As a matter of fact, he lived off locusts and wild honey. And so because he lived that way, a man of fasting, God used John the Baptist in probably one of the most remarkable ways of any Old Testament prophet. In fact, Jesus said about him that he's the greatest of all the prophets. John the Baptist was the great high priest of Israel, even though um, Caiaphas held that position by man, but John the Baptist had the high priest office by lineage. And he was the one that was baptizing the masses. He was the one that baptized Jesus, passed the priesthood and the prophetic office to him, pointed people to him. He was the one that transitioned from the law of Moses to the new covenant. Is everybody seeing this? He fulfilled his destiny in God. But I believe him being a man of fasting and prayer is why he did. Where Samson was given over to the lust of the flesh, John the Baptist was a man of prayer and fasting, and it had everything to do with how they fulfilled their destiny or not. So hopefully you're seeing this. We're living in the latter days. We're living at a time that the Bible calls perilous, 
These are dark times. There's a lot of spiritual warfare. Society is getting more and more dark and evil. And society is beginning to accept things that would have never been accepted before. And they're getting ready to accept the Antichrist and his false prophet. And while this is going on, there's a remnant. And let me tell you, we need to walk, as the Bible would say, circumspectly. We need to be a people of humility, a people who have a strong prayer life, that there's a lifestyle of fasting in our lives, that we've consecrated our lives unto God and we're fulfilling our destiny in God and being what he wants us to be. So let me show you also, I'm kind of bringing all this together, the historical counts. As I've studied revival history, what I've found more than anything is that a lot of people write about the leader of the revival. So when you talk about the Welsh revival, a lot, a lot of people will talk specifically about Evan Roberts, but in actual fact, the revival was far greater than Evan. He was just probably used more than others, but even when he got, went into hiatus, what happened? There was all these itinerant ministers that were still seeing great moves of God carried on for a while. But see, they, the historians tend to focus on the individual, and they also focus on just the success of the revival. And all of that's important because it's encouraging. But what I have found that they don't focus enough on is what brought the actual revival was those that were really praying and fasting and seeking God. And let me give you all the revivals up to this point that we talked about. Let me give you an example. Number one, the first great awakening with John Wesley and all them, the prayers of the Moravians opened that up. The Moravians, for 100 years, mind you, had prayer daily, 24-7, prayer and fasting, because they did it in, in uh, increments. They would have somebody carry different shifts, but every day they had continual prayer going on. And because of that, the heavens opened over them. They were able to launch missionaries out in the world, and God used the Moravians in a powerful way, but it was their prayers that opened up revival. And also the Holy Club, this was those that were there um, at the Ivy League University that the Wesley brothers and Whitfield and them were together. There was a group of them that set themselves apart to seek the Lord in a special way called the Holy Club. All right, the second great awakening in the days of Cane Ridge. You don't hear about this, but Edwin Orr is probably one of the most prolific historians of revival. And he wrote about this in his book called The Flaming Tongue. And he said that there was a Scottish Presbyterian minister in Edinburgh named John Erskine published a writing pleading with the people of Scotland and elsewhere to unite in prayer for revival. While that was going on, we know that the first great awakening had waned and sin had become rampant and the church was backslidden. But at the same time, that other people were feeling a burden to pray. James McGreedy had moved from the Carolinas and forged into the new area we now know as Kentucky. But what was he doing? He was uniting the churches in prayer. The Presbyterians of that time, also the leadership, had asked the group, the Presbyterian, um, all of them had sent out saying, we need to pray and ask God to send revival because there's, we're seeing the darkness in the land. There was a group of people 
that began to really cry out in prayer, and God responded. So the second great awakening was birth in prayer. And then we have the ministry of Finney. He was in between the second and third awakenings. He was right there around, what, 1830 and 40 time frame. But Finney was a man that was given to prayer and fasting. And not only that, but in the zenith of his, his evangelistic ministry in around 1830, 1831, when God was using him in an extraordinary way, Daniel Nash, Abel Clary, other, there was a few others, they were prayer warriors that would pray and fast and earnestly seek God. And it was the prayers and fasting connected with the anointing on Finney that brought in the harvest of souls. And then whenever 1857 rolls around, we needed another major move of God. Jeremiah Lempier, remember? I've taught on this. You guys are so familiar. I know that the, all of this is, is, is something that you've already heard. But Jeremiah Lampier was up in upstate New York, and he was so burdened because he was seeing once again society getting dark, the church is backsliding, we need revival. He had been saved in Finney's ministry, and Jeremiah Lampier decides, I need to start a prayer meeting. And so he gets a group of men together. They begin to pray, very small in number at first, but within, I think it was something like six months, they, there was like 10,000 different people that were gathered in prayer. It was amazing. And the prayers of these different groups coming together of businessmen praying and seeking God opened up the great third awakening in our nation from 1857, 58, 59 that shifted things in this nation. Hundreds of thousands of people repented and got right with God, not just in America, but around the world. Now we get into what the 1900 time frame. Around this time, God, once again, we needed a revival, and but God began to put it on the hearts of certain people to pray. Evan Roberts and some of his comrades had such a burden to pray. There was a man by the name of Jenkins that he began to gather his church where he was at, a group of people to really pray. He had a burden, especially for the young people, to see revival among our young people. And they began to pray. And not only was that going on in Wales, it was going on in other places around the world. At the same time, the Moody Bible Institute was calling for prayer for revival. Keswick Convention in England was calling for prayers for revival. Even in Melbourne, Australia, there was a call for prayer. In Wonsan, Korea, and even in the hills of India, there was reported people that were praying for revival. And while all that was going on, what was happening in America? Frank Bartleman, William Seymour, they began to earnestly seek the Lord for revival. We need a move of God. And the prayers were heard, and God sent revival that exploded in wells, went all over England and Europe, and, and here in America, and ended up in L.A. to the world. I'm just showing you it's the prayers that brought the breakthrough. And uh, I'm jumping way ahead in this. But as you guys were reading that book, Prayer That Brings Revival by Dr. Cho, everybody hearing this sermon, you need to get that book and read it. What brought revival to America, I believe with all my heart, had a lot to do with the prayers of the South Koreans for our nation. Dr. Cho got saved, and he firmly believed that if Americans hadn't come over, 
and fought in the Korean War, that South Korea would have just been swallowed up by the North Koreans. It would have been communist. And Dr. Cho had such a love for America because he really felt if it wasn't for the sacrifice of these American soldiers, we would be in a very difficult place. And when he started his ministry, he even used an, an old abandoned American tent that was left behind after the Korean War. He set it up, and that's where he started having his meetings. And years later, he was seeing that America was backsliding and getting away from God. And he asked the Lord, Lord, are you done with America? And God said, no, I'm not. He said, I'm going to send a revival to Pensacola, Florida, and it's going to spread throughout this entire nation. And so he began to have his South Korean people really pray for America. They had a burden, and they knew how to pray. And I believe their prayers is what opened up the revival that we saw break out in Brownsville but spread around our nation. And I don't believe the second half of that prophecy has been fulfilled yet. He said he saw it going all these different places, but then he said eventually all of America will be ablaze in the fires of revival. I believe we saw the first half of the prophecy happen in the 90s. But the second half is about to happen. And what's happened is this. All of us that were touched in the 90s revivals, God has us positioned all throughout this nation now. And there is a hungry group of people, remnant, kind of a silent majority, if you will, out there, that are seeking God in the secret place. There's a group of us out there. And when it's the fullness of time, I believe God's going to flip the light switch and revival is going to begin to break out in America again. And there's people that are in strategic places all across America that will facilitate that move in their area. And I believe the second half of that prophecy will be fulfilled. And Ruth Ward Heflin saw that too. She said that she was taken up in a, in a vision in Israel and she was caught up and she was looking um, from a bird's eye view over America. And she saw revival break out in America, and she saw it started kind of small, but it crescendoed, and all of America came ablaze in the fires of revival. And she said, when the revival reached its zenith, she said she saw that Dallas, Texas was like a hub of the revival, but she saw tremendous healings and miracles in this coming move of God, to the degree that even people that would have gone to the hospital deterred and went to the revival to get healed instead because of the miracles that were taking place. That happened at Azusa Street, and I believe God's going to do it again. So God's not done. He, this, this has reached like it always has. Every time revival has come, society has gotten dark, the church has gotten backslid, but there's a remnant out there praying, and God's going to hear, and God's going to pour out His Spirit and turn the tide. All right, so I wanted to talk just briefly about Franklin Hall and then kind of give you a few testimonies and then we'll pray. But Franklin Hall was born in October 4th of 1907. He was born not breathing. He was blue and the doctors were trying to get him to breathe and they absolutely could not get him to breathe. And the doctor had gotten to the point of saying, I'm so sorry to the mother We've done everything we could do and left the room and his mother was holding this dead baby and she's crying and she holds him up like this and says, Jesus, if you'll heal him, I'll give him to you the rest of his life. He started crying. And so he had a supernatural birth. 
And God healed him and raised him up. And, and she honored the, what she promised God, and she raised him in the ways of the Lord. And Franklin Hobb became probably one of the greatest generals of prayer and fasting this nation has ever seen. In the 30s and 40s, God was really beginning to stir him. I mean, he had such a burden for prayer and fasting. And in the 40s, God began to open the doors for him to preach in some places and minister on fasting. And in the fullness of time, around 1946, he wrote a book about fasting called The Atomic Power of Prayer and Fasting. And he was preaching at places and God began to really move upon that teaching and call people to prayer and fasting. And that book began to get out there. And all of us that have studied revival history know that God just kind of breathed upon that book and upon those writings and upon his sermons, and it caused a, a preliminary move of prayer and fasting to take place. And that move of prayer and fasting is what began to give way to the greatest revival of healings and miracles in our nation's history in the late 1940s into the 1950s. Out of that revival of prayer and fasting that began came great ministries of healing like Oral Roberts, William uh, Branham, and many others. And they will tell you, I've read their testimonies, T.L. Osborne, was so impacted by prayer and fasting, the teaching on it, his miracle ministry was birthed in a season of prayer and fasting he was doing because of being inspired by that. He felt, not only that, all of those that I'm mentioning said that it was out of prayer and fasting that God birthed their miracle ministries. Franklin Hall was used by God to be a catalyst of prayer and fasting that ushered in one of the greatest, probably, I believe, up to this point, the greatest revival of healings and miracles in our history. And not only did it take place here in America, at the same time, I'm getting ahead of myself in this teaching, okay? At the same time this is going on in America, guess what's happening in Argentina? Ed, Edward Miller and them began to pray. They began to see breakthroughs, and Tommy Hicks was sent. Remember the story? And they had a great revival of healings and miracles and salvations in Argentina. So this was a great move of God that swept all over the world, but it was birth in prayer and fasting. Now, Franklin Hall's ministry was very powerful. He would minister with his wife, and groups of people would covenant with him to go on fastings with him. They had tremendous healings. There were reports in his meetings of people that began to pray and fast with him of being healed of incredible things. There was a person that had been raped and had contracted AIDS and was very sick. And as they began to pray and fast with Franklin Hall, God purged their blood and there was literally not a trace of AIDS that could be found in their body as God healed them. That was just one of countless testimonies. People had tremendous healings. Uh, cancer disappeared. All kinds of things happened in this season of prayer and fasting as they would come together. Franklin Hall had a powerful miracle ministry in his own right, but his teaching spurred people up in their faith to believe God for incredible things. 
There was actually a sign and a wonder that kind of followed his ministry. There were times when he would have a large group of people, and when the Holy Spirit was leading him to do so, he would pray that God would send his presence and his fragrance into the room. And the people that were there would say that there was such a thick, beautiful presence of God and a fragrance that would come into the room that was undeniable by every single person in the room. There was other signs and wonders I could talk about, but Franklin Hall also, though, some of his teaching was before his time. And let me kind of give you some examples. Anybody that's going to live a life of prayer and fasting like Franklin Hall did in seeking the Lord like that, he began to move into a realm of understanding spiritual things that were before his time. He got revelation that people just simply were not ready for. And because of that, he did suffer some persecution and some misunderstandings. In my opinion, some, one thing in particular probably could have been presented differently, and I think it had been better received. But he taught something called body felt salvation. He believed that Jesus not only pray, uh, paid for at the cross for your spirit to be born again, but paid for our soul to be renewed in our physical bodies to enter into a place of divine health. How many would say that he's correct in that? I believe he is. The Bible says the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, gives life to your mortal bodies. So he tapped into something, but because of the way he presented it as a body felt salvation, I think that people didn't understand it and they persecuted him because of his teaching. But there was tremendous testimonies of people that experienced their physical bodies being saturated with the glory like a baptism of fire and literally, their physical bodies experienced tremendous change. Some of them experienced things like their youth being renewed, supernatural weight loss, or if they were real sickly, supernatural weight gain. Their bodies, sicknesses and diseases disappeared, hernias disappeared, all kinds of things happened to their bodies because they moved into some kind of a realm of the glory of God saturating their flesh and changing their bodies. Isn't that amazing? And he connected it to prayer and fasting. As their bodies were, were, they were fasting, the Holy Spirit, the glory, the fire of God was consuming them, and it was literally changing their physical bodies. But unfortunately, it was not well received by the greater body of Christ at that time. But probably one of the most incredible miracles happened that I have ever heard of in my life, and that says a lot because I've seen people uh, and heard testimonies and even saw this. When I've seen people uh, raised from the dead, creative miracles and everything you can imagine. But let me tell you one of the most remarkable testimonies, a story that'll blow your mind. How many remember the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? They were thrown into the fire and nothing happened to them, Okay. There was a true story, you can look this up for yourself, it was out of Franklin Hall's ministry, that his books and his teachings got to so many different places, but there was a man that was a sailor, and he was on a ship, and they're out in the middle of the ocean, and he's working with others, and he's trying to be a witness, but he got a hold of Franklin Hall's teachings 
on prayer and fasting. So he's a man given to prayer and fasting. He's seeking the Lord. God's using him. He's trying to be a witness to his other sailormen that are there. And what happened was that God began to visit him, and he began to feel what Franklin Hall was talking about. He began to feel his, his body being baptized in some kind of a fire like a glory, and he began to feel different, that God was really touching him and anointing him and began to use him in a powerful way. Well, lo and behold, one day, they're down in a lower deck area where the machinery was. There's an explosion, and there's a fire, and him and all of those around him were trying to escape, and they could not leave. They couldn't get out. They were pinned in. And he said that the glory of God was so strong on him that it, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, it formed some kind of a bubble around him. He's seeing his other sailormen around him being burned with fire. He's trying to drag them out of there. He said that he's seeing their flesh melt off their bodies. They're in agony. And he drags as many of them out as he possibly could. Not one of them lived through the incident except him. And he didn't have a burn on his body. And the military confirmed the story that they saw it for themselves. What a miraculous story there. But Franklin Hall was somebody I believe God used in an incredible way. And they had some teachings. They, they also felt there were so many different things. But they felt that even personally, uh, as you sought the Lord, I, I could get into more, but maybe I don't need to. But there was, there was deep revelation that they had that was just simply before their time. And those of us now that are further along, I believe that we can glean from that and understand it. But at the time, people didn't really understand it. But see, later on in the revival of the 80s, we had a revival of teaching that came from Kenneth Hagin Sr., Derek Prince, Dr. Cho, and others that helped the body of Christ understand divine healing, faith, the deliverance ministry, prayer, and, and the power of the Holy Spirit, the personal work of the Holy Spirit. And all of that teaching helps us now on the other side of it that we can go back and look at things Franklin Hall taught, and we can actually understand it the way he understood it. But before that, back then, before the teaching revival, people had a hard time understanding. Does that make sense? So those that God has called to be pioneers, many times you will be misunderstood because the revelation that you bring, the greater body of Christ may not be ready for all of it. All right, so history is written by intercessors. I'm going to give you three quick stories. I'm just going to kind of close out by sharing a few things. But Derek Prince shares some incredible testimonies about prayer. And he was trying to tell these stories because he wanted us to understand, as we come together and pray, our prayers make tremendous power available that actually can change history. And one of the stories he told was this. This was a really amazing story. So when Israel was about to become a nation, Derek was stationed out in that part of the world under the British military. He ends up meeting a lady in Israel who had an orphanage with about 11 girls, if I remember, 
he ends up marrying her, so basically adopts these girls as his children, and this is now his family. And Derek was just an incredible man of God, but as Israel was about to become a nation, there was this war that was raging there, and it became extremely dangerous, and Israel was totally, completely unprepared. Israel formed a military called the Haggadah, which was basically totally untrained people that had volunteered to do their part to fight out the enemy, but they were outnumbered, outgunned, outtrained. There was nothing about the Haggadah that had a chance. Understand. And Derek was living there, and his, his wife and the situation was, was very serious. He saw, for example how the Arabs had come in, and I'm trying to be not too graphic, but the Arabs had come in and attacked some Jews, and it literally cut them into pieces, okay? So I'm just going to leave it there because he got a little more graphic about it. And he saw that if the Arabs win, what was going to happen? And the, the leaders in Israel at that time were telling the people, they said, now listen, make sure that you have a gun in every home, but he said, make sure that you have enough bullets that if the Arabs win, that you have enough bullets to kill each one of your children and then shoot yourself, do not fall in the hands of the Arabs because they will not only kill you, they will torture you to death. That's how serious things were. I'm just kind of putting it in perspective. Let's move on from that. So this was really serious times. And so Derek and his wife began to pray, and God impressed upon them to pray this way. God, we ask you to be with the Haggadah, and that you would give them victory, but we ask you to paralyze the Arabs in front of them. Well, they prayed that, and they believed God. They kept praying it, kept praying it. Pretty soon, there was a, a, a group of men from the Haggadah that came, and they told Derek and them, we need to set up our outpost in your backyard. And Derek didn't really want this per se, but they were asking him, but he knew that they weren't really asking, you know. So he said, sure, come on in. So they come in, and they set up their outpost in his backyard, and him and his family are sitting there trying to deal with all that. They're in the middle of this war. And they're praying, him and his wife are praying, God, paralyze the Arabs before him. And he overhears some of those in the backyard talking amongst themselves. And some of these Jewish military men are saying to one another, and Derek overhears them say, you know, it's the craziest thing. We will take a building full of these armed men and say we're outnumbered, outgunned, we really don't stand a chance, yet they seem to be paralyzed in front of us and can't do anything. <laughs> he heard him talking about it. He said, I knew God was answering our prayers. Israel, understand, I don't want to dwell on this, but Israel stood absolutely no chance to become a nation. You understand that? This was an act of the Almighty. God did this. They, they were just outnumbered, outgunned. They didn't have a chance against these Arab militaries, but God drove back the enemy and gave them the opportunity to become a nation in a day, fulfilling prophecy. The second story he told, which I thought was really powerful, back in the days of Stalin in the Soviet Union, 
During those days, Stalin was an extremely evil man. Communism, they had slaughtered millions of people, okay? And Stalin had began, begun a new wave of persecution against the Russian Jews. And anybody that knows about history knows the pogroms and how horrible it was, but he began a whole new wave of persecution. And so Derek began to get extremely burdened about the situation. So him and his wife and maybe a few others began to set aside a time of prayer and fasting, and they were asking God to intervene in the situation. And as they prayed and fasted and asked God to intervene, next thing you know, Stalin drops dead. Now, Derek pointed out, we did not ask God to kill him. We just asked God to intervene. But God decided he was going to kill him. Well, when Stalin died, also the persecution that they were praying about died with him. And now we know from, from history that everything began to change after Stalin's death. Is anybody seeing what I'm saying here? History is written by the intercessors. And this wasn't like thousands of people praying. This was him and his wife and a few others in prayer and fasting believing God to intervene. It doesn't take a lot of people. The Bible says if just two or three will gather together, he's in our midst, and if two agree on earth, he'll do it. we got to have faith. But our prayers can change history. And another really powerful story was when he was in Kenya. There were three African nations within the continent of Africa that were receiving their freedom from the British rule at this time. The Congo, after receiving freedom, was plunged into a bloody civil war that was horrible. Kenya, where he was, had the potential of seeing the same thing, but actually far worse. So here they were, Derek is a missionary in Africa, they're in Kenya, they, they begin to have these powerful meetings in a particular meeting that they're in. The Holy Spirit falls in an incredible way. They felt so much authority and power in the meeting that they knew that God had come down for a strategic purpose. And when God was in that place in such an intense way, Derek knew we don't need to do what a lot of Pentecostals do where people just begin to run around praying for one another and just kind of have a feel-good thing. He said, no, that's not why God is doing this. He said, we need to focus together because God is wanting us to pray about some things that are strategic for this area. The, what, the interpreter that was there fell on his knees and had an open vision. And in the vision, he saw that there was a red horse that was riding with fierceness toward Kenya. And he knew that they needed to pray. The people there began to really pray and intercede for Kenya. And as they prayed, they knew God was hearing their prayers. They knew that something was shifting over their area. And the prayers that night turned the tide and here's what happened. Not only did Kenya receive their freedom, Kenya was not plunged into the civil war it could have, and that, red, that rider of the red horse represented communism. Communism tried to force its way in. 
it got right up to the border of Kenya, but because they had prayed beforehand, it never was able to get into Kenya and get established. Oh, y'all hear what I'm saying? History was, is written by the intercessors, and I'm going to tell you something. It was so important that God had used those prayer meetings to shift that region because I'm going to tell you, years later, you know who had a tremendous impact in Kenya? Reinhard Bonnke saw thousands of people getting saved in that area. Y'all hear what I'm saying? If it had become communism and if it had been shut off like that, then history could have been quite different for Kenya. So I'm sharing all that just to simply say this. Our prayers is what births revival and changes history. Now, I'm going to tell you, even in River of Life, I don't share these things a lot because, you know, but there's been prayer meetings in River of Life through the years where the Holy Spirit has come in such an awesome way that it, I don't want to use the word fearful, but the right word would be like you're in awe. And it's just such an intense presence in the prayer meetings. It was obvious that not only was the Holy Spirit here in a powerful way, but it was obvious that there were angelic entities that were here. And as we began to pray in certain directions, even blasting the shofar over something, you could literally feel the shift and you could feel the angels departing that direction. And it was so holy and hallowed it was kind of almost fearful. It was just such holy ground. And then I would be amazed at the reports that would come up, even on secular news, of how God answered our prayers as we prayed. And let me tell you, prayer will shift things. Here we are at a time in America where we need to be praying like no other time. But see, what a lot of people don't understand, I'm going to close with this. People talk about prayer in this nation. Steve Hill told me a lot of people talk about prayer, but not a lot of people are doing it. And let me tell you something as well. A lot of people don't know how to pray effectively. You see, here's the problem. A lot of times when people are coming together and supposedly praying, they're not really praying. They're giving announcements. They share something out of the scriptures. They say a little token prayers in passing. They're not really praying. Other times, groups of people come together and they're sin in the camp or there's people there just sitting around on their phone bored. Those are not the type of prayer meetings that are going to change history and birth revival. You understand? The type of prayers that are going to change things the Bible says, and I'll talk about this in later sermons, but the Bible says where two or three are gathered together in my name, I'm in their midst. That's what happened in Kenya. See, the gathering together in the Greek implies being drawn together by the Holy Spirit. So it's not the amount of people there. It's that God drew the right people together. And it implies there where two or three are gathered in my name as you pray. And the word there for pray and, and all that is symphono. And it means like to harmonize. It's a mixture of worship and prayer going up before God. But it's 
spirit-led. It's spirit-birthed. Is everybody hearing me tonight? It's not just something out of your head. It's something where deep is calling unto deep. It's the right people coming together by the Spirit where the Lord himself is in their midst. And there is spiritual authority and power. And those that are present are under the anointing and they're worshiping and praying in the Spirit. Those type of prayers is what births revival and shifts history. I hope everybody's hearing me tonight because this is probably the content of this sermon, maybe one of the most important content of what we talked about because there's a lot of people saying, well, we prayed. Well, we have to know how to pray effectively. And not everybody knows how to get in the spirit and pray. See, there was a generation, I close with this, but there was a generation before now of especially older people that knew how to pray and fast, and they knew how to get in the spirit. They knew how to pray in tongues. They knew how to move into deep intercession, even groans too deep for words, and they knew how to pray until something actually happened. They knew how to pray. And now we've moved into something that's, that's not really, it's not like that. And people, you got to understand, when you have services that are too focused on the decor, the entertainment, the show, the thing, the, the smoke and the lights, the stuff going on, and they're not, they're not really getting deep in intercession and shifting things even though they may have, may have some really exciting sounding worship and people are jumping around and it sounds really hyped up, but it's not really. Do you remember, this may not be the best example, but I think that it'll make the point. When Paul had to deal with sin in Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he said this, he said, when you're together and I'm with you in spirit and the Lord is present. Do you remember that? Hand such a one over to the devil. He understood that there was a gathering where the Lord was really present and there was tremendous authority in that. Because see, when we're together and we're and everybody's in the spirit, we've been drawn together, we're all here praying. People are not over on their phone checking their Facebook. People are not bored. The right people are there. And we're all praying together. The intercessors are groaning. Others are praying in the spirit, but it's a harmony. It's a symphony that's spirit-led. And I've been up here feeling led, and I begin to pray a certain direction, and my wife is in unity. Others are in unity, and you can feel that something moves. That There's tremendous authority when God's people come together in unity, and we're being led by the Holy Spirit to pray the will of God and we move like this, and we're praying a certain direction. I'm telling you, tremendous authority is released. Angels begin to be dispatched to march on assignment, and it sets things in motion that can, that can birth revivals, that can yield a harvest, and can shift history. But people have to learn how to cooperate with heaven and really how to pray effectively. There has to be unity, and there has to be faith. 
So hopefully that makes sense tonight. Those, the historic revivals we've talked about, those people knew how to pray and have God come down. Think about Hebrides. You are familiar, those two old ladies? They knew how to pray, you see. And their prayers got Duncan Campbell there and saw the revival open. So anyway, Lord, we just thank you for tonight. I thank you for hearing and answering these prayers tonight. Lord, I thank you for, for this sermon, getting where it needs to and accomplishing what it's supposed to. We thank you for it, Lord. Raise up intercessors in these last days that know how to pray effectively. Lord, to see revival break forth, see the harvest come in, and Lord, see history changed. Lord, let it come. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.